all over the world, people come up to me and say how much they have enjoyed my book. They may not have understood it all. If they did, they would be ready to start a PhD in theoretical physics. I didn't do my scientific work in the hope of winning prizes and medals. I did it because I wanted to understand the universe. There's nothing like the thrill when you discover something no one knew before. I hope I will be remembered for my work on black holes and the origin of the universe, not for things like appearing on The Simpsons. Although my body is very limited, my mind is free to explore the universe. Religion was an early attempt to answer the questions we all ask. Why are we here? Where did we come from? Nowadays, science provides better and more consistent answers, but people will always cling to religion because it gives comfort, and they do not trust or understand science. After my expectations had been reduced to zero, every new day became a bonus, and I began to appreciate everything I did have. While there is life, there is hope. Zero G flight I did last year was wonderful. After 40 years in a wheelchair, it was so good to be floating free. Religion has been a force for evil throughout history. Religion is supposed to make people behave for fear of the hereafter, but this doesn't seem to have deterred people in the past. I think the conventional afterlife is a fairy tale for people afraid of the dark. One can't prove that there wasn't a creator. All one can do is offer a more reasonable explanation based on science. Ever since the Greeks, we have managed to explain what previously seemed acts of God in terms of scientific laws. At one point, I thought I would see the end of physics, as we know it, but now I think the wonder of discovery will continue long after I am gone. Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about the human side of astronomy and cosmology from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Here is your host, Daniel Ray.
The ambient audio you heard at the end of the introduction comes from the funeral service of the late Dr. Stephen Hawking. The applause in the audio came as the casket carrying Dr. Hawking's body entered the Church of St. Mary the Great in Cambridge on the 31st of March in 2018. Dr. Hawking passed away on March 14th, the birthday of physicist and mathematician Albert Einstein. Dr. Hawking was a Cambridge theoretical physicist who defied doctors' prognosis of his motor neuron disease and went on to live to the age of 76, decades longer than anyone had ever expected. The disease left him unable to speak on his own, but through the use of a computerized voice synthesizer you heard in the introduction, he regained his communicative abilities. Hawking had a prolific career in science in addition to raising a family and traveling the world to speak on the nature of the universe. Whatever your thoughts about Stephen Hawking may be, he and his unique genius defined our generation and its relationship to the universe. His pioneering work in black holes and the origin of the universe have been the topic of intense discussion and study within the fields of physics and cosmology. But you might also be aware of the fact that Dr. Hawking was outspoken on his beliefs about God, the afterlife, and religion in general. His writings often mention God, but as you heard in the introduction, his concept of God is not finally the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For Dr. Hawking, God was simply an explanation for the universe that has since been replaced by scientific explanations. As the late Dr. Carl Sagan wrote in the introduction to Dr. Hawking's bestseller, A Brief History of Time, quote, This is also a book about God or perhaps about the absence of God. The word God fills these pages. Hawking embarks on a quest to answer Einstein's most famous question about whether God had any choice in creating the universe. Hawking is attempting, as he explicitly states, to understand the mind of God. And this makes all the more unexpected the conclusion of the effort, at least so far. A universe with no edge in space, no beginning or end in time, and nothing for a creator to do. End quote. Sadly, shortly after Dr. Hawking's passing, there were many public comments confidently pronouncing with disturbing delight that the late Cambridge physicist was now in hell. I would suspect many who made such unfortunate statements likely did not understand much about Hawking's work in physics or cosmology, or that he worked together with Dr. Don Page, a Christian and a cosmologist who supported Hawking's scientific work. Ultimately, only the Lord of the heavens and earth, Stephen's creator and our creator, knows his eternal standing. It is not for us to speculate, and that is not the focus of this two-part interview. My guests this week on Good Heavens, David Hutchings and Dr. David Wilkinson, have written what is perhaps the most concise and extraordinarily charitable Christian understanding in print about the late Dr. Hawking. Everything from his most intriguing scientific theories about the universe to what he believed about God. 
As Christian philosopher William Lane Craig said of the book, it is, quote, an astonishingly good read, end quote. Indeed it is. God, Stephen Hawking, and the multiverse introduces us to Dr. Hawking's incredible life of overcoming his physical disabilities and how it did not seem to deter his mind in the least. He fathered children, wrote books, gave lectures, conducted research, did interviews, a lifestyle and work ethic that would deplete the energy of the most able-bodied among us. As believers, we can learn much from Dr. Hawking's life and work. He persevered and did not allow his physical limitations to stop him from studying and exploring the cosmos. How many times, though, are we defeated and discouraged, rendered incapacitated by far lesser things? His labors also demonstrated that the heavens do indeed declare the glory of God, that the universe draws the best and brightest minds heavenward, from a Cambridge doctor to the youngest child. Hawking's work reminds us that the universe not only can be known, but ought to be known, and that it is worth a lifetime of pursuit. Lastly, his passing should give us all pause to consider our own standing before God. What do we really know about the universe? We claim to know the God who created it all. Do we approach the science of the cosmos and the secular scientists who labor to understand it with a spirit of gentleness and humility? Or do we, as non-specialists, sometimes arrogantly come against the scientists and their theories and ideas? We have barely taken the time to understand. As the Lord Jesus exhorts all of us, we are to love God and our neighbors with everything we have and everything we are. Quote, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. End quote. Loving our neighbors, those who hold a much different view of the universe and life within it, require that we first love God with our entire being. But of course, we all fall short of that. Were it not for the mercy and grace of Jesus, none of us would believe him to be the creator of the universe. None of us would be able to confess him as Lord. We all fall short of the glory of God. So we hope this episode will encourage us all to see what gems of wisdom we might discover from people with whom we do not agree. Though outspoken about his belief God did not exist, Dr. Hawking was a brilliant and enigmatic individual, a cultural icon, a scientist, a husband, and a father, whom we will no doubt be talking about for as long as we look up at the stars. So come and see. Come and listen to a wonderful conversation on the life and work of the remarkable Dr. Stephen Hawking on this episode of Good Heavens. So my name's Dave Hutchings. I'm a physics teacher, a high school physics teacher in the north of England, uh, York, the original York. So good here that the Americans decided to copy it with a New York. And um, I did a physics degree, went into teaching, and a few years ago got uh, the unexpected opportunity to start writing books uh, on God and science. Uh, by that point, I'd, I'd been teaching for 
more than a decade and I'd had a lot of conversations in the classroom about uh, what you're, you're a science teacher and you believe in God. And so a lot of these things had gone around in my head already. Um, and I was brilliantly guided by other experts who I try and team up with to get some books written. And the latest one of those is God, Stephen Hawking and the Multiverse, which I wrote with David Wilkinson, um, who I'm guessing is now going to introduce himself. <laughs> <laughs> yes, David, why don't you share with us your background and experience as well? Yes, well, my experience is much longer than Dave's, simply because I'm a generation older than he is. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, I am, my background is as a professional theoretical astrophysicist. So uh, I worked within astrophysics on questions such as star formation and galaxy evolution, and a little bit on the Big Bang itself. And then uh, felt a call to Christian ministry, and so moved into being a full-time pastor, and then unexpectedly for me was drawn back into the academic world by the invitation to come and teach theology at Durham University, uh, with a particular emphasis on the relationship between science and theology and Christian apologetics. And it's uh, been a fascinating thing for me to revisit with, uh, with Dave some of these questions which have fascinated me since I was a PhD student myself working in this area. I remember Hawkins' book, uh, Brief History of Time, appearing in 1987 when I was just starting my own uh, work in theoretical physics. And it's been a, a, a time where I've been able, with Dave, to revisit some of these big questions mm. that Hawkins started and has developed over his academic career. And Dave's skill as a writer and as a physicist and as a Christian theologian has brought new light to some of these matters for me. So it's been a joy. Wonderful. Well, thank you, gentlemen, both for uh, taking the time out of your evening uh, to uh, speak with me here in Texas. We are six hours apart. Uh, so how, how I do have to ask this question since we are in a scientific-like discussion. What is six hours in the future like? What do I have to look forward to? <laughs> <laughs> I always love talking to somebody in another time zone. I, look at, I can ask that question. <laughs> well, that's right. Of course. I mean, what you have to look forward to, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this in Texas, is here in Newcastle, where I'm living at the moment, uh, it's a gray cloud. Uh, it's drizzle, so light rain. It's quite <laughs> cold, being the middle of summer. It's a typical British uh, middle of summer evening. Oh, okay. And so uh, no air conditioning. Oh, uh, and uh, just the sense of, uh, of uh, a country which is beginning to emerge very slowly from lockdown. Yes, But that's yes. another discussion that we could have someday. It is, really, truly. Uh, I can't say the same for Texas about slowly emerging. Yes. We kind of yes. jumped out. Yes. <laughs> um, so anyway, the, 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 we are going to, the reason I make that kind of silly statement about what the future is like is because we are going to talk a little bit about uh, Dr. Hawking's nature of time. Uh, really, it is a mind-stretching concept to, I loved it, uh, Dave, when I used to teach middle school, and I, I always used to, I used to teach English and sometimes math, uh, depending on what the school needed, but I would ask sometimes the kids to look at the clock and tell me what a minute was. 
or tell, tell them what, ask, ask them to tell me what an hour was or what time was. And we get into these really interesting discussions. But uh, Dr. Hawking seemed to have, uh, I, I guess as I was reading the book, I mean, you didn't exactly say it, but, but through the quotes that you offered about him, he seems to have almost attacked time. Does that seem like an accurate summation of, of his work? He seems to go after time. I mean, like with imaginary time, he wants to get rid of the beginning of what we traditionally understand as, as time as being linear and easy to understand. Dave, what do you think? Is that, uh, is that accurate or am I way off? I, I wouldn't phrase it as saying that he was attacking time. I think what Hawking wanted always to do uh, was get an actual answer to his questions. He didn't, he didn't like the idea of um, vaguely pushing things around, mm. and uh, and what he was what he was always willing to do was go a step further or a step bigger than a lot of uh, his community or his peers had done up until that point. So mm. one example would be uh, back in the nineteen sixties when he's a PhD student, um, and uh, and he's just been diagnosed with motor neurone disease which would have been a bit of a bombshell obviously uh and and along with that came the life expectancy maybe of another year or two yeah that's incredible Uh, yeah um now what he's doing in his phd is uh he's interested in studying the universe but he uses a piece of maths in his phd that wasn't designed to handle universes at all it was a piece of maths uh, that had been come up with by Roger Penrose, and it was supposed to handle black holes. Mm. Uh, now, black holes at that point, nobody was sure whether they actually existed. They were highly theoretical. Um, it was a very obscure piece of maths. But what Penrose did was he showed that uh, if a star does begin to collapse under its own gravity, that that process will run away with itself. This is what Penrose was able to show. And... Um, it would contract and contract and contract. The gravity would get stronger as it did that. Um, and that would make the contraction more rapid. Uh, the whole thing got more and more dramatic. And you would end up with this horrible, nightmarish thing called a singularity, mm. which, was, which was a point of infinite density and infinitely strong gravity, mm. which, for a, which for a mathematician is no problem at all because mathematicians can think six impossible things before breakfast. But... <laughs> But for a physicist, it's it is um, it's it's like a horror film because uh, if you can't divide by zero for a physicist, um, you've really hit a problem. Mm. And at that point, at that point, all future predictions are off. Mm. So Pen- mm. Penrose had come up with this come up with this idea that all black holes would collapse into singularities. And, uh, and that idea was sitting around, and some people knew about this idea. But what Hawking did that nobody else had done was to say, well, hang on a second. Um, a black hole shrinks down to a singularity, and the universe is expanding. So those things seem to me very similar, he said. You know, a mm-hmm. shrinking black hole and an expanding universe. What if I turn time backwards? And he did just that uh, and ran the maths through. And he found that if you ran time backwards on our university, on our universe, it just looked like a black hole. 
And sure enough, it would also collapse down into a singularity, Mm. which means if you turn time forwards again, uh, he had shown that our universe emerged out of a singularity. Mm. So he did that in the 1960s. And the reason I tell that particular story is he took esoteric maths that was pretty obscure and applied to one small item in the universe that many people didn't even believe existed. And what he did with it is apply it to the entire universe that we're actually living in Mm. and and, and made it stick. Uh, And I, I think that's very indicative of the way that Hawking thought all the way through his career, that he would take things that other people thought were fancies or curiosities Mm. um or even impossibilities and he'd say well hang on i think i can get something from this Mm. so i i wouldn't describe it as attacking time i think what i would describe it as is is this sort of incredible persistence and willingness to stick at something Mm. um and and milk it for everything that it's worth Mm. um and uh uh, I think we will talk about imaginary time, but I, I think there's a few steps to talk about before we get there. Sure. Um, and I might hand over to uh, David at this point and see mm. whether he wants to um, talk about that. I mean, do you think that's an accurate description, David? Absolutely. Spot on. And I think uh, by doing that, that led him uh, to a problem, which Dave described as the physicist's horror story. So although he'd uh, shown how the universe emerged from a singularity, there's an inherent problem with that. And that is, as you get closer and closer to the singularity, or in the universe's case, closer and closer to time equals zero, various of the fundamental uh, models of physics, theories of physics, break down. Mm. General relativity doesn't work. Uh, quantum theory and it's the way that it interacts with general relativity at a time which is very very small physicists call it around about 10 to the minus 43 of a second mm-hmm. which is one divided by 10 followed by 42 zeroths of a second <laughs> lots of zeros. our current laws of physics break down now uh, Hawking was worried by this because effectively he wanted a, a, a physics description of both the beginning and the evolution of the universe. Mm. And it's interesting that he reported on, in A Brief History of Time, of a conference that he attended at the Vatican. Um, uh, Vatican has had a very great uh, interest in cosmology and astronomy over the years. And Hawking was there at a conference, and he reports that the Pope said, um, this very first moment of the universe's history isn't for scientists to explore. Uh, effectively, this is where God comes in. Now, in fact, the Pope didn't say that, but that's what Hawking heard. Mm. And uh, that became one of the motivations for his work then, which Dave has tantalized us about in terms of imaginary time and the no-boundary proposal, to actually having shown a singularity, trying to avoid the implications of the singularity. And so his work in A Brief History of Time onwards was an attempt to um, find ways where he could avoid the horror story of the, of the singularity, if possible. And that takes us into the way that he began to 
think more deeply about what the laws of physics would look like if he had a theory which worked at mm -hmm. 10 to the minus 43 of a second, mm -hmm. a theory that would bring together quantum theory and general relativity. And he did a wonderful, some would call it sleight of hand, some would call it intuitive imaginative leap, which was to say, I don't have a full theory to describe the very first moments of the universe. But if I did, it would look a little like this, and it would need to use imaginary time. Now, when things become complicated, I now say, and over to you, Dave, to take <laughs> us uh, through Hawkins' understanding of imaginary time. Well, let me uh, interject here, because this is a, a fascinating way to, to launch this. Uh, the reason for my initial question about uh, attacking time uh, was to have you sort of dispel these, this idea that because a lot of people come to Stephen Hawking and they're, they know that he's famous for saying God doesn't exist. I mean, when you in the popular imagination, this is what is touted as, uh, you know, he's a bad philosopher. He's a bad theologian. Uh, and, you know, and so in the popular mindset, you get this sort of um, tacit antagonism that you think everything that you read about Hawking, he just hates time. He just hates God. And, and so to heck with everything, right? But that's not exactly, uh, that's not exactly what, uh, and there's far more to, to Stephen Hawking than, than just that. He is uh, um, absolutely a, a pillar in, um, in helping us to understand, at least to some degree, understand uh, our universe. So though he was uh, anti-theistic, um, we shouldn't throw everything that he had come up with out the window. Correct, Dave? Yeah, that's right. I, well, I mean, there is a, a theory called quantum mechanics, and, uh, and quantum mechanics is usually considered to be the realm of the small. Now, that, it's a little bit lazy to say that quantum mechanics is, is the realm of the small, because quantum mechanics does actually claim to describe the whole universe. Um, and but but we only see the weirdness of it when mm. we look at very small things. Um, it, it sort of has this weird property, quantum mechanics, that as soon as you get to anything visible, anything us-sized, or even anything you know sort of dust-sized, um, all the quantum mechanical effects seem to uh, cancel out or behave very nicely. Mm -hmm. We don't have to worry about it. But as soon as you get to the very small you end up with things that are quite counterintuitive, like electrons being in two places at once, or in fact, an infinite number of different places at once. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so nobody really wants quantum mechanics to be true because it's so uh, counterintuitive. It seems to fly in the face of our, our common sense, but it just stands up again and again and again to all the experimentation that we throw at it. And it's so we're, we're stuck with it, really. The problem is that uh, Hawking was a relativist. He played around with general relativity. That was his real realm and his real understanding. And general relativity and quantum mechanics do not get along. They are, they are theories that fight each other and disagree with each other and lead to different conclusions. But general relativity also works very, very, very well when we test it on big things. Mm -hmm. So we've got we've got two theories that seem to hold up to scrutiny that we know how to use um, that do a great job for us that allow us to build computers and rockets. Um, so pragmatically, we're quite happy, but theoretically, we're twisted up in this 
horrible situation where quantum mechanics is accusing general relativity of being untrue and general relativity is accusing quantum mechanics of being untrue. Mm. And so what would normally happen is someone would stick in one camp. Someone would become a quantum physicist or they would be um, a, a cosmologist and they wouldn't do both because they, they were in complete contradiction to one another. But what Hawking did uh, was help to usher in a completely new field in, in physics of quantum cosmology, which mm. was a way of, of trying to get the two working together. Now, most people thought that this was pretty much impossible. And the only way it could be done in the long term was to come up with a third theory that wasn't either of them, uh, that sort of superseded them both. Uh, but what Hawking wanted to do was find a scenario in which they could play nicely together. Mm. And he did actually manage to do that. It's a very specific situation. Um, this was his work in the 1970s. And uh, what he found was that with black holes, once again, uh, which is why his, his uh, legend is tied up with black holes so much, mm -hmm. that if you think about a black hole, you can actually measure some or you can predict some quantum effects going on around the edge of a black hole yes. now the reason that really matters is that black holes show up in general relativity they are firmly in the big physics camp mm -hmm. um, and yet uh, around the edge of them you can start thinking about what's happening to tiny little particles which is a quantum effect mm -hmm. and what what hawking did was say okay I'm going to think about the particles right on the edge of a black hole. And so therefore he's allowing his brain to think about general relativity and quantum mechanics at the same time. Mm. And amazingly, he was able to come up with a set of equations that, that didn't fall to bits. They didn't contradict each other. And he was able to show that there would be situations where two particles would pop into existence out of the quantum vacuum, which is a well-known phenomenon within quantum mechanics, one of those particles would get pulled into the black hole, mm. forever lost to the universe, and the other particle could go flying out and escape, um, escape the pull of the black hole and go heading across the universe. And when he ran the maths, he found that he could actually predict exactly how many particles would escape. And not only how many would escape, but how many of each type would escape and how much energy they would have. And so he could plot a graph of what you would expect to see if this was happening. And when he did that, the graph looked exactly like uh, a 19th century thermodynamic curve mm. uh, no, known as black body radiation, mm. which was instantly recognizable to everybody. And so he had managed to uh, invoke quantum mechanics and general relativity and produce a thermodynamic result. Mm -hmm. Now, it's hard to describe just how mind-boggling and completely staggering that is as an achievement. But the most important thing about it is that it meant that other people thought, hang on a second, we might be able to do some of this as well. We, you know, maybe it's not a complete write-off that quantum mechanics and general relativity might actually work together. Mm. And since then, uh, that's pretty much 
the big game in, in theoretical physics, quantum cosmology. So you, if you've heard of string theory or loop quantum gravity or all these kind of things, they're all attempts to tie together uh, quantum mechanics and general relativity. And he, he, that was the watershed moment, really. Well, and it's interesting too, and, and David, you could speak to this, I'm sure, given your um, dual backgrounds, uh, that at, throughout the book, and I was reminded of this, that, that Hawking pursued these ideas, uh, the, the bigger picture, that there must be something behind this or something that can be explained or something that can be rationally understood, despite how counterintuitive it might be to common sense, the physicist seems to pursue a, a grand unified theory or a theory of everything. Uh, based on this assumption that the universe is intelligible that's an aspect that's an aspect of of faith within science often people talk about faith as opposed to science or science as opposed to faith but the scientist has a number of trusted assumptions one of which is that the universe uh, ultimately is intelligible mm. now where does that come from one of the areas that it comes from as a number of historians have pointed out, is that that assumption is actually a theistic assumption hmm. that uh, the rationality of the universe, the intelligibility of the universe, the simplicity and faithfulness of the physical laws was in part built on the assumption that there is a creator behind the universe hmm. who holds it together as a unity and gives this sense of intelligibility Albert Einstein famously said the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. Yes. Why should it be? And it is a fundamental faith statement of physicists that underneath the complexity um, uh, is this uh, rationality and simplicity. Now, in one sense, we've, uh, we've been encouraged by that as physicists in that we've seen the power of the simplicity of the physical laws, by which I mean, as Dave has eloquently said, you can apply them to the edges of black holes and they work. Mm. Uh, you can apply them uh, to vast galaxies or to electrons and protons and they work. But what really frustrated Hawking in all of this was that um, that quest for understanding seemed to hit a brick wall at the very beginning of the universe. And what he didn't want to do, going back to a point you made earlier, Dan, was he didn't want to simply bring in God or a particular view of time in order to get him out of this brick wall. Right. And sometimes that's called God of the gaps. It's a phrase that many of us know and use that if science has an unexplained gap in it, the tendency for the theist is to insert God into the gap as the explanation. Mm -hmm. um, the trouble with that is as science explains more and more of its own area, God is pushed out of the gap and mm -hmm. becomes irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other problem that, that Hawking, I think, was attacking was a, a deistic view of God. Mm. This is the God who steps in uh, and lights the explosion of the Big Bang, and then retires a safe distance, saying, cheerio, folks, see you on Judgment Day. I'm not <laughs> going to have anything more to do with the universe. Right. Now, that for me, that's Hawkins' anti-theism. 
Yes. I don't think Hawkin ever engaged with um, the God of the Bible. Um, I think he was attacking uh, a God of the gaps or a deistic view of God. I agree. Yes. As a, as a alternative to asking the scientific questions. And sometimes Christians have used that kind of God of the gaps uh, not to encourage science, but actually to try and hold science. To try to, yes, yes. It's interesting, too, because in the beginning of A Brief History of Time, of course, you all know the the introduction was written, eloquent introduction, brief though it was, was written by the late Carl Sagan. Um, And, of course, Sagan's introduction kind of alludes to the idea that uh, the whole book, Brief History of Time, is about God, or rather about uh, nothing left for a creator to do. Yes, which yes. is deliberately going back to the Newtonian deistic, well, not Newton himself, but what came after Newton and the sort of the right. deistic theology uh, that followed in the wake of science. And I think uh, you both, and I was very surprised and delighted to see this at once, um, you both, you mentioned uh, C.S. Lewis and the discarded image in, in the book. And that's uh, not a lot of people, even who know Lewis, know this book. Uh, and I read it for my master's thesis. In fact, I I did my thesis with uh, Michael Ward. I think you both yeah, know. Good. Yes, yeah. He, he was wonderful. Yeah. And, um, and, and, and so Lewis talks about this, uh, this very concept of this mythology that follows in the wake of science. Those are Lewis's words. But the idea, and, and part of what Lewis believes is this mythology, is that um, you know, once we developed a mathematical concept of the universe, as wonderful and beautiful as it is, that the mythology that follows this is that we can sort of dispense with God as well. Do you find that to be the case? Do you think Lewis is accurate there? Have I accurately represented that idea? Do you think? Uh, Dave? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that uh, I experienced that in my working life. Uh, mm. When we, mm. when we get onto, it's usually when we get onto the space topic mm. that, that half an hour in when we've talked about the, the vastness of space and we've gone through the process of saying, well, you know, there are other planets and then there's a sun and this is how big it is. And then there are other solar systems mm-hmm. and then there are other galaxies. At some point, someone will say, sir, do you believe in God? You know, <laughs> as, and it's as if it's as if cosmology almost prompts that, you know, the Bible says right. heavens declare the glory of the Lord. And I see it happening in my classroom. And when I say that I do believe in God, some of them are genuinely surprised. In fact, I would say the majority of them are. And I often get comments like, but you're a science teacher. Mm. And, uh, and so we're talking about people aged 14. And by that point, they've already come up with this idea somehow in their heads that you have to pick a side out of uh, God or science. And mm. people like Sagan, I think, whilst they may never explicitly make that point, their their product is constantly suggesting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and what happens is you end up with a sort of string of greatest hits. So mm-hmm. it often starts with the, the Alexandrian library. Uh, they say, yes. oh, in, in ancient Greece, there was this uh, brilliant collection of scientific knowledge and um the christians some, burned yeah. it down yeah that's right <laughs> um and plun- and then they plunged us into the dark ages and when the when the church took over we had a thousand years of nobody doing any science or any maths and everybody being stupid uh until 
the scientific revolution bailed us out again. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Copernicus is usually referenced and Bruno and Galileo. So there are these, there are these sort of data points along this, this curve that seems to suggest that the two have always been at war. Yeah. Thankfully now we're maybe are heading to a time when science is finally going to win out. Right. The, um, go on. Well, yeah, the, 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 the string of points that you, you talk about, Dave, is, is this, uh, is this kind of now these are these are real things real events but the way they're talked about there's a mythological scheme that is added to them as they progressively go down the chronological history that you often see repeated in textbooks or or the new cosmos series that come out you know with neil degrasse tyson now um but 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 you have the master storyteller um Sagan's widow, Andruyan, had said of Tyson at some point when the 2013 Cosmos came out that, that he was like a shaman of our culture, telling the story of the Cosmos. Indeed, Tyson had known Sagan early on, but you know, if you know anything about Tyson, he's a master storyteller, as was Sagan before him. They have a, 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 a charismatic personality. They tell a good story. They get people interested in science but they're giving us a kind of mythological account of the ever decreasing idea of God in having anything to do with reality. Now that we've got all the numbers crunched, um, God's, I think it's, it's like Laplace, right? Uh, I have no need. Well, it, it, it is. I have no need of God. And uh, of course, this conflict model told by the high priests of science, some high priests of science, mm. it is, is actually not that old. Um, mm. It uses earlier data, but its historical origins are probably in the 19th century with another master storyteller, uh, Thomas Henry Huxley, mm. Darwin's bulldog, as he was called at the time. Mm. And Huxley formed a secret dining society in the latter part of the 19th century. It was called the X Club. Mm. And this dining society had a particular agenda to it. And part of their agenda was that the Church of England was far too much in control of professional science. And so at my own university in 1842, when the first professor of astronomy was appointed, in order to be professor of astronomy at Durham University in those days, you had to be an Anglican clergyman or you couldn't hold the post. Uh, Various presidents of the British Association of Science, well, let's say it would help if you were a bishop. Mm. Uh, to do that. Mm-hmm. And Huxley and one or two others said, we need to free science as a new profession from the control of the Church of England. And part of that agenda was to tell this mythology, this story, which Dave has uh, said about the continued conflict between science and religion. And a number of influential histories were written at that time, influenced by the conflict model, Mm. which reduced history to this single curve, picking out episodes of conflict along Mm. the way. In fact, it was far more exciting, far more interesting than that. Mm. And so during the the so-called Dark Ages or the era of the church, many uh, scientists were engaged Uh, on behalf of the church, at wondering at God's creation. Mm -hmm. Copernicus, of course, was a person full of faith. Galileo was a person full of faith. These were people who were motivated in part by their faith to stand up for what they thought was the truth. 
um, as they observed the universe. And so history is much richer than uh, where we often allow. And uh, Mm -hmm. I think Dave is very telling his comment about the classroom, because certainly within the Western world, this Mm -hmm. conflict model is imbibed at a very early age Mm -hmm. through Mm -hmm. the general culture. Um, What's interesting, if I might say, Dan, just for me, is that um, I have the students that Dave uh, teaches at undergraduate level, and they're still, many of them, in this conflict model. But as they slowly start to move into research, and particularly in cosmology and physics, an interesting thing begins to happen. The science itself begins to raise big questions, Mm. philosophical questions metaphysical, theological questions. Mm -hmm. And a number of my colleagues at Durham University uh, who work in cosmology wouldn't call themselves Christians, but they'd be open to engaging with big questions about the intelligibility of the physical laws. Where do they come from? About uh, some of the anthropic balances, which uh, Paul Davis would call the Goldilocks enigma, Mm -hmm. about this sense of awe at the universe. Yeah, And so I think we're beginning to see physics itself not conforming to this mythology, but beginning to introduce new questions, which actually say, let's have a conversation about whether there's a deeper story to the universe than just uh, the scientific story. You both bring up the point in the book um, about mathematicians, physicists encountering Dave, uh, Dave, you said this earlier, infinities. Uh, For a mathematician, it's no big deal. But for a physicalist, a physicist, uh, they're they're nightmares, as as you say. But it was interesting, too, because as your book reminded me, it was like, okay, so these infinities keep popping up in the equations. Mathematicians are fine with them. The physicists are pulling their hair out. But and then and then, of course, you know, uh, you you mentioned how often God appears in, in Hawking's book. Uh, one of Hawking's books, about every five pages or so. And it it brought to mind immediately as I was reading this this morning, Ecclesiastes uh, in chapter three, after the end of uh, the the nine verses about a time to love, a time to hate and such. Verse 11 says, he has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that a man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. And so how you guys catalog, you know, the, the physicist's quest, Stephen's quest to, to know these things, it seems like as you study the cosmos, you are almost, I lack of a better word, forced to encounter this concept of infinity or eternity. And then even it seems reluctantly against your own will, you are forced to somehow bring God into the equation, if you will. What do you think, Dave? Yeah, I agree. I I we have we're hardwired we're mm. hardwired as as creations of god um we're, we're designed to have a relationship with him and we are also in rebellion against him and those two things sit in tension mm-hmm. um until they are that tension is resolved by um the the conviction of the holy spirit and uh, and having our eyes opened mm. and even then um even then as a christian i think a lot of the time we're rebelling against God still. Um, and he, he has a lot of correcting to do in, in our thinking. Agreed. Um, and, and in our, uh, but um, I mean, I, I think 
that what Haw Hawking is an example of a very, very, very intelligent man being able to think critically and logically when he is analysing anything that doesn't impinge on the gospel or a moral responsibility to his creator. Hmm. But, but as he gets closer to um, the, the idea of God himself, his thinking becomes less logical and it becomes, um, he, he doesn't show the same doggedness. He doesn't show the same willingness to do some extra research and find out what other people have said. Mm. He, his thinking isn't so clear anymore. Mm. And, um, and this happens a lot. Uh, if you read um, work by the likes of Lawrence Krauss or Sean Carroll, these guys, they're so smart mm -hmm. and their writing is so good and so entertaining. And you think, wow, you're really picking apart some of the most difficult ideas um, that are out there and you're explaining them with great lucidity. Mm -hmm. But then when you engage with God, you're actually talking about it at a level that is lower sometimes than Sunday school level. Mm. Um, and, and can you not see the, the floor? Can you not see the floor in your thinking? And of course, the Christian would say that that is because um, of the effects of, of sin. It's the effects of rebellion against God. Mm -hmm. um that that clouds are thinking um and uh i mean hawking let's let's take hawking's example of um how he tried to resolve the singularity right because i think this is a good example of it mm -hmm. he he comes across a a way of doing quantum mechanics that richard feynman invented yeah that was fascinating uh, yeah called uh the, its proper name is the path integral method and its popular name is the sum over histories method. And it's a bit of a shortcut. Feynman was brilliant at finding shortcuts. Uh, there's one famous example where he solved a problem in an hour that um, the rival group using the normal technique had taken weeks and weeks and weeks on and, <laughs> and was stuck. Yeah. Uh, so he found this shortcut in quantum mechanics called uh, the sum over histories. And Hawking realized that this could be the key uh, to do what he really wanted to do, which was uh, come up with a quantum theory of the universe itself. Now, nobody knew how to do this, and they were totally stuck. But but Hawking thought he could see a way using Feynman's shortcut, but it, it required a rather unusual compromise, which was to, um, to turn time into imaginary time. Now, if you're not a physicist or not a mathematician, this sounds utterly bonkers. It sounds like bonkers. Lewis Carroll, you know, yeah. the, the jabberwocky. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. Now it isn't. It isn't. It isn't anything like as bonkers as it sounds. Um, imaginary numbers show up in in maths in solutions to all sorts of problems, and the basic idea is that um, the initial imaginary number was the square root of minus one. What does that mean? It means a number that if you multiply it by itself, you get minus one. Now, there aren't any numbers that actually do that. Okay, because uh, if you try doing it with plus one, you say, right, okay, let's do one times one, I get one. And if you try doing it with minus one, you say, well, what's minus one times minus one? You still only get one. Mm -hmm. So there doesn't seem to be a number there uh, on our number line 
that if you multiply it by itself, the answer is minus one. But this didn't bother mathematicians uh, <laughs> in the in the in the high medieval uh, period in the early modern period because they realized that if they just pretended there was a number that when you multiplied it by itself there was minus one you could actually solve all sorts of mathematical problems um and this horrible number wouldn't show up in your final result you'd have to use it part of the way through but then it would drop out at the end Hmm. and uh and the same is true in physics Uh, electrical engineers make use of this imaginary number uh, and they can solve circuit problems and get the values for currents um, that, you know, and they get real values, real world values. Hmm. I mean, electrical engineers don't want to muck about with things that aren't real. Um, and, uh, and similarly in quantum mechanics, uh, we use these imaginary numbers all the time. Uh, it's, they're, they're part of the backbone of it. But Hawking's idea was to say, okay, I'm going to do the same trick, but with time itself, I'm going to, I'm going to multiply it by this square root of minus one. Hmm. Now, the the value in doing that is that time starts to behave like space. That's the value in doing it, that that now you can treat the dimension of time in exactly the same way that you would treat the dimension of space. And um, and that allowed uh, Stephen Hawking to do some quantum mechanics because he only had to think about space. He no longer had to think about time. So it's like, uh, to let me to make sure I'm following you and for the sake of my audience, uh, time becomes, if we think of a, the dimensions of a box or something, where you have length, width, and height, time becomes something like the volume in the box, right? Is that close enough? Is that accurate? Or What, what it means is that um, we, we all know that we're confused by time. St. Augustine said, I know what time is until somebody asks me to tell them what it is, and then I realize I don't have a clue. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a great one. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that that is what everybody thinks about time. Okay, it's, it's, confu- it's, it's, it's simple, and it's intuitive, and everybody knows that it exists, but as soon as you do any actual thinking about it, your, your brain hurts. Right. And, uh, and it's because it doesn't behave like anything else that we know of. Um, and, uh, you know, we just move forwards in time. We can't move around in it like we can move around in spatial dimensions. I can mm-hmm. go forwards and then I can go backwards again. I have a reverse gear on my car, but I don't have a go backwards in time gear on my car. You don't have um, a flux capacitator. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and if I did, I'd probably keep it a secret. Yes, um, yes. And, uh, and, and so what, what this trick allows Hawking to do is say, right, I don't have to think about the weirdness of time anymore. I don't have to treat time as this exceptional case that is confusing. I can treat it mathematically in exactly the same way that I treat the dimensions of space. Mm. And, and uh, when he does it, he ends up with a universe that is effectively a space-only universe. It doesn't have any time. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't have any time. And that is a sense in which he says, I have got rid of a singularity. Um, and uh, I've got a space-only universe. But then he's faced with this problem, which is that clearly we don't live in a space-only universe. So um, although he can switch to imaginary time and, uh, and do the quantum mechanics, at some point he has to switch back to real time again to be able to describe the universe that we're now in. Um, and doing that is fairly arbitrary. You know, how you can say, well, I'm going to consider imaginary time 
when it suits me, but then I'm going to ditch it as soon as it doesn't suit me. That's just arbitrary. There's no, um, there's no physical reason that we should do that. Right. Uh, it was re- really just a consequence of being able to make the maths easier. Mm-hmm. The reason I mention it is uh, in, in the terms of our broader context of clarity of thought is that really that doesn't tell you anything at all. There's nothing in Hawking's physics at all that tells you about whether or not the universe has a creator or that tells you about whether God is real. Mm. But, but what he decides to do is say, well, look, you know, in, if I do this, if I formulate this, this regime of imaginary time and I have a space-only universe, then the universe doesn't need a creator, he says. Mm. But that's not clear thinking. You know, we can go all the way back to Leibniz, you know, 400 years before Hawking, um, and, uh, and say, well, the question was, why is there something rather than nothing? Mm-hmm. That, that was the question. So if you've got a space-only universe, that question hasn't gone away. No. The question is, why is there a space-only universe rather than nothing? Of course, the classic answer from a Christian perspective is what the opening to John's Gospel tells us. Quote, In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. End quote. John 1, 1 through 5. Were it not for God revealing himself to us through his Son and Spirit, we too would not comprehend him nor what he has created in any redemptive way. Our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cosmos as his handiwork is all of grace. And for that, let us be thankful. We hope you have enjoyed part one and we hope to have you tune in next week for part two. Meanwhile, we highly recommend God, Stephen Hawking, and the Multiverse. A link to the book is included in the description below. For Good Heavens, I'm Dan. Here are the most important pieces of advice that I've passed on to my children. 1. Remember to look up at the stars, and not down at your feet. 2. Never give up work. Work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it. If you are lucky enough to find love, remember it is rare, and don't throw it away. Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on this podcast or any of the other apologetic resources from Watchman Fellowship, visit watchman.org today. Be sure to check out the story of the cosmos, how the heavens declare the glory of God, with chapters written by both Wayne and Dan. It is a comprehensive down-to-earth Christian defense of the cosmos, 
featuring essays on how the heavens have influenced science, art, philosophy, history, and theology. The Story of the Cosmos is a wonderful addition to any bookshelf or coffee table. Filled with stunning images of the heavens, high-quality gloss paper, and in-depth essays, it can be a great gift for friends, family, and non-believers interested in the intersection of science, culture, and faith. Thanks for listening to this episode of Good Heavens. I'm Dave Mitchell.